Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. It's Third Wednesday Theology and today we are talking about the covenant of grace. We also have listener Eric to thank for some snacks. As you know, in the month of May is May the 4th, which is for Star Wars fans, kind of a little, what do you call that? Like a little pun? It's like a punny holiday. Punny holiday. Yeah. May the 4th be with you. Get yeah. it? So we have a Chewbacca cheesecake that on May the 4th was delivered. And this listener said, hey, I want you guys you know, to, to eat this next time you record. So... Here it is. It's been in the fridge, and we're enjoying the Chewbacca cheesecake. Very good work. Chocolate, Eric? peanut butter. I was going to ask what the flavors are. Chocolate, I think that yeah, chocolate peanut butter. There's, I believe I'm seeing what looks like Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh yes, in here, it's in, delicious. In the cheesecake. I mean, this is basically my favorite dessert. While talking about my favorite theologian, this is this, this is, is an a happy day for, day for me. Amazing. By the day. way, Dusty White. Couldn't make this podcast because he's doing something else at this exact moment, but he did drop in here and take two pieces of cheesecake. <laughs> Sorry, I can't be on the show, but I'm going to eat the snacks. I want the snacks. Yeah. I respect that. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. if you're a regular contributor, you have, there's, there's privileges that come with that. Yeah. The rest of the staff who gets to eat the leftover cheesecake is also going to be thankful. Or maybe Chris will take it all home. I might just them. take, I mean, there's this great kind of design on it that is made out of just solid frosting or something else. Chocolate. I may just fondant? take that chocolate fondant. Yeah. It's something. Yeah. Just take it. It's delicious. If you want to bring us snacks, email podcast at cdomaha.com and I can give you the deets. There you go. This podcast is not <laughs> sponsored, but that was a great, that was a yes. great drop for a, for a sponsor. Right <laughs> we there. need more snacks. <laughs> We're sponsored by people who bring us food. Uh, hey, so the covenant of grace, Chris, I usually, uh, when we do a bobbing chapter, sometimes I summarize the content of the chapter. I don't really want to do that here because I actually think this is one of those topics that is very foundational to Reformed theology. But I remember until I went to seminary, I had not thought much about this at all. So yeah. I assume for many of our listeners, this is not a topic that's like, oh yeah, the covenant of grace. Rather, it's going to be like, uh, what is that? <laughs> what is it's not like talking grace, about yeah. sin and death like we did last time. Everybody knows, yeah. everybody's familiar with sin and death. But when we talk about the covenant of grace, this is one of the sort of unique um, ways that uh, the Reformation taught us to read the Bible. And it's one of the places where I think people like Bavink have much to add to our sense of the one unified story that the Bible is telling. So I was going to ask you yeah. to sort of like bring our listeners into the world of when we talk about the covenant of grace, Chris, what in the world are we talking yeah. about? Maybe the simplest way to put it is our salvation, the entirety of redemption, is not an accident or it's not reactionary. Hmm. but it has been planned from the beginning. That's when we talk about the covenant of grace, we're talking about the covenant that God, father, son, and spirit make themselves to execute a plan of redemption. Now, does that have covenant with people in our salvation? Yes, but it starts with this covenant of grace that father, son, and spirit decided this is going to be the plan of salvation. This is how it is going to play out and work. So when we think about the entirety, the scope of our salvation, we have to remember God planned it. God fulfilled it. He executed it from start to finish. It's a work of God's grace. And so that's, that's, I think that's probably the simplest way to say what the covenant of grace is. Okay, great. The other thing Bavik wants us to remember is that God's salvation is not um, 
individualistic that God yeah. is saving for himself a people. And so the, the covenantal idea here has a lot to do with the fact that as we read the Bible, we should understand the people that God is drawing to himself and our salvation as part of being included into this covenant people that God is gathering. So that's sort of another aspect of the covenantal ideas. It helps us not be individualistic in how we think about our salvation. Mm-hmm. And it, I think too, where maybe sometimes this can get, I don't know, confusing or complex is when we also talk about the fact that this is this one covenant runs through the entirety of the Bible. Good. Yeah. We'll get to that yeah. in a minute. Yeah. Um, so this is how it's helpful to start by thinking about Genesis one and two. Um, and Bavink on, on the bottom of page 253 of the wonderful works of God gives a little summary of, I think when we start by thinking about Adam and Eve, it helps us then understand how this covenant of grace works. He says, um, the way in which man before the fall was to share in eternal life was this, do this and thou shalt live. By the way of perfect obedience to God's command, he was to set about inheriting eternal life. In itself, that was a good way, which had man remained on it to the end, would with absolute certainty have led him to the heavenly salvation. And God has not on his part broken that rule. He still holds. I had to turn the page there. He still holds to it. If there were a man who could perfectly keep God's law, he would still receive eternal life as his reward. (laughs) The problem is there is not someone who could do that except for the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Bobbing is setting up there is when God says to Adam, hey, uh, do this and you will live, he, he really is laying out a condition by which had Adam and Eve remained in that condition of obedience, they would have received eternal life. Now that they have fallen into sin, this is where the covenant of grace comes into play in history, at least. As Chris said, there's a sense in which the covenant of grace, we think about it in two categories. We think about it as God's eternal counsel in his own being to redeem a people for himself. And then the historical working out of that in time and space and history, which begins in the garden when God shows up and says uh, to the to the woman that you your seed, uh, the serpent will bruise him on the head, but you'll bruise him on the heel, or sorry, bruise him on the heel, you'll bruise him on the head. Um, that, that, that mother promise, as Bavink calls it in Genesis 315. great way to say that. Is the, is the sort of historical beginning of this covenantal promise playing out. What else is it helpful for, for us to know as we think about this covenant of grace, Chris? Yeah, so I think to go to your point too, with Adam and Eve, the garden, we get the beginnings of law and grace. So what do we get? The beginning, you know, this command you know, you may eat of every tree, but don't do this. So they're, they're kind of the law, the command, and then the breaking of that. And then what comes on the, the follow of that is a promise, like you just pointed out. So the, the whole theme of law, grace, promise, redemption begins right here and then begins to unfold throughout the rest of Scripture and culminates in Christ. Okay, let me read something Bavik said that kind of blew my mind for a minute. Usually, as usual, when I read Bavik, he says at least one thing. I'm like, I had never thought about that until right now. Here it is. By his transgression, man has departed from obedience to God, has left his fellowship, and has sought out the friendship of Satan and entered into contract with him. And now God comes in his grace to break up this covenantal relationship between men and Satan and to put enmity there instead of the friendship that had been concluded between them. That was just fascinating. Think yeah. about actually what yeah. God's doing in the garden is he's breaking up a covenant that we had made with Satan. I liked that idea. Yeah. Because in some ways you, we can sometimes overplay the relationship. Like we've chased after sin and 
we're in league with Satan, you know, to whatever degree that means. But as he points out, God has been on this, made this point that, no, I'm going to, I'm going to break that. I'm going to complicate that. I'm going to make it clear. He's your adversary, all of that. Who, I mean, and it's, this is all packed in just a few short verses in Genesis three. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about how this covenant of grace plays out in history. Um, because the, the, the way that Reformed theology generally sees this is this covenant of grace, God makes it in the beginning with Adam and Eve with this promise in Genesis 3.15, and then that it is sort of reinstantiated or restated uh, with Noah in Genesis 9, with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, uh, with Moses at Mount Sinai, with David as king, and then ultimately leads us to the new covenant in Christ. Um, and I found it helpful that Bavink on page 256 says, the covenant of grace is everywhere and at all times one in essence, but always manifests itself in new forms and goes through differing dispensations. So he's sort of saying, hey, this one covenant is always of grace and it's always one in essence, but it does have this sort of historical development as it, as it goes through history. Yeah, and that's probably the aspect of this that at times can be hard to understand and even places of debate where people understand how scripture is connected differently. But it it is important to see that if you recognize one covenant of grace running through the entirety of scripture, and I like the way Bavink lays this out is it it starts more general and in the area of the patriarch Noah and the patriarchs, and then it starts to become more specific where you get Abraham, you get Israel, and then you get Christ but then you get the universal scope as well. So there's this organic movement. He likes the word organic. He does. This organic movement of the covenant of grace where we, maybe the simplest way, again, to understand this is we just get more light in the sense it starts in Genesis 3 as this promise of the seed of woman, and then eventually it comes to Abraham as this descendants, and then we get eventually to a king, Messiah, Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of, you know, not just Israel, but the Gentiles. And so... Um, the movement, if we kind of think of what it, what is the movement in, of the covenant of grace, it goes from general to specific throughout Scripture. All right, so let's do a little theological uh, nerding out for a minute that might help you understand your childhood or various things you've heard in the Christian church. The big question as we think about the scope of the Bible is, how do we make sense of continuity and discontinuity? If you read the Old Testament, you look back and go, this is weird. God's telling his people like what kinds of clothing they should wear and how to sacrifice different animals and which people they should kill and which ones they're okay to make a covenant of peace with. It's just, this is not my world, right? Like this is not uh, my life. And so anyone who reads the Old Testament is immediately provoked by the fact that like, well, there, there seems to like some things are different here than they are now. Obviously, the simple distinction between Old Testament and New Testament gives us that sense as well, that part of this is older and part of this is newer and something changed in the middle here. And so there have been different ways of explaining what are the difference, what what changes and what's remaining the same. One of the classic ways, well, classic isn't even really the right word. One of the recently modern ways of thinking about this is an approach called dispensationalism, which was very popular from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s and still lingers on in many places. And the idea there emphasized the discontinuity. And in its most radical forms, it sort of said God was doing one thing with Israel in the Old Testament, and he's doing something different now with the church. And these two peoples are two different peoples uh, that, that God works with in two different ways. 
the most radical forms of dispensationalism, which there aren't many people who hold those anymore. Um, by God's grace and through good study of the Bible, I think there's coming to a better sort of sense of the covenantal sort of underpinnings of all this. But in the in the most um, extreme forms of dispensationalism, they would say there's only nine of the Ten Commandments that apply to you because it doesn't apply unless it's reiterated in the, the teaching of Jesus. So yeah. if Jesus didn't say it, then Exodus 20 doesn't matter. And I think that's an unfortunate way to read the Bible. Yeah. Or even... There are different ways of salvation. Right. Old Testament, New Testament are different. Right. Law of grace, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the, what the covenantal view acknowledges is that this is one covenant that is growing organically and that, there, that God's way of executing this covenant does go through different historical mm-hmm. developments. So the way that um, Boving says it that I think is really helpful is to say, the light by which the believers travel differs but their route is always the same. I thought that was a really helpful statement. They're always going on the same road. The light by which they're traveling differs. All Abraham had was leave the place you're from and go to the place I'm going to show you, and yeah. I'll make a great nation yeah. of you. And he had to trust God and walk in that light. The light we have after Christ, after the resurrection, after the writing of the New Testament is much clearer as far as how God's grace works out, what it is that God is offering us in Christ. Um, but these, the, the idea here when Bavink says that God's covenant goes through differing dispensations is a way of acknowledging that there is difference. There is development here. Um, the important thing we need to understand is that there's not a, there's not like a, one of my professors used to use this uh, PowerPoint slide that had like an ax coming down in the middle of the Bible. So we can't chop the Bible in half and yeah. say the old Testament is yeah. like this. Now we have the new Testament. Who cares? This is one organic story, one organic whole God's covenant of grace starting in the garden of Eden and, and getting us to Christ. And I think, one of the things that holds it together, again, if you, you get in some of the nuances, the discontinuity, it, it's good to understand those things. It's very important. But if, you, if you're looking for certain principles that kind of hold the, the continuity together, grace through faith. So if you go back to Genesis, God makes this promise. What do Adam and Eve, what are they called to do? Believe and embrace this promise. Abraham what are they called to do? Believe and embrace this promise. And this is Paul's point in Galatians 3 and Romans 4, is that what came first was promise, that is primary, and what was the response, what was the call to embrace this promise, which is a grace, by faith. So that thread that we now is in the fullness of Christ is still throughout the entirety of Scripture. So we, we need to hold on to that continuity and be very clear about that continuity. So what, however we may fall, you know, maybe confused or unclear about the weeds of some of the ways that the, these things change, we can trace that, and I think it helps us sort of keep our, our bearings. Excellent. Let me read a quote from Bavink on that exact point, page 256. All the dispensations of the covenant of grace, whether of Noah, Abraham, Israel, or the New Testament church, promise, gift, and grace are and remain the content of it. In the course of time, what is included in it is much more plainly unfolded, and it becomes more apparent how rich the content of the covenant is. But in principle, it is all already contained in the mother promise. The one great all-inclusive promise of the covenant of grace is, I will be thy God and the God of thy people. That is comprehensive and includes everything. The whole accomplishment and application of salvation, Christ and his benefits, the Holy Spirit and all his gifts, a single straight line runs from the mother promise of Genesis 3.15 to the apostolic blessing of 2 Corinthians 13.13. In the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is contained the whole of salvation for the sinner. 
So that's a great way of capturing all of that, that the one great promise is, I'm going to be your God and the God of your people. That's the, that's the promise of grace that God makes uh, throughout all of Scripture to his covenant people. As Bavink works out the, ex, our experience of God's covenant of grace, what does it mean for us to come to faith in Christ to be gathered into this covenant? He emphasizes three things. One is what he calls the counsel of God, C-O-U-N-S-E-L. By the way, when you're spelling people, counsel, like council bluffs or the city council, is C-O-U-N-C-I-L. That's something different than counsel, like when you go to a counselor, okay? This is talking about God's counsel, C-O-U-N-S-E-L. And when the scriptures speak of God's counsel or God's decree, they're speaking about God's plan in his own will and purpose to bring redemption to the world. And so the scriptures ground redemption in the counsel of God. And Bobbing wants to start there and say, hey, this covenant of grace that I'm talking about begins in God's own will and mind and purposes. Then he, he talks about this, this counsel of God works itself out in history in election, in God's choosing of a people for himself that he is going to draw to himself in Christ. And what I like that Bobbing does is when I think election, and often when I teach on election, I know that the people sitting out there are wondering, like, what does this mean for me? So I tend mm-hmm. to start with, like, your salvation, or what does it mean for you to trust in Christ? What Bobbing does is he says he starts with Christ. He says yeah. God elected a mediator, Christ, to be the second Adam, to be the head of a new humanity, and then he gave that mediator a people, he also elected a people who are going to belong to Christ. And I just like the way that he connects election, not so much to my individual salvation, but to the scope of what is God doing in, in recreating the world, in renewing humanity, in uh, picking up where Adam failed and bringing his grace and his kindness and his goodness to bear for the good of human beings. And it's such a good point, too, because it takes election outside of this abstract, theological, philosophical concept, and it it, we say you can't think about election without thinking about Christ. It has to be Christ-centered. If you're going to understand biblically the concept of election, you have to start with Christ and what God has done in Christ. And, and I think the other thing, too, which he highlights well, is pointing that oftentimes when election or the counsel of God comes up, where we tend to jump to is sort of this determinist, deterministic, mm-hmm. uh, negative sort of reaction to it, where he wants to press and say, Hey, the way scripture talks about this is actually for our good and for our encouragement and for our strength. And, and it plays out too. If you look at the majority of times that scripture talks about election, it's meant to encourage the people of God, to strengthen the people of God, not to turn into this abstract theological debate. There's a few times where, I mean, you think of Romans 9 through 11, where the apostle Paul addresses that a little bit more at that level. But the majority of the time, Election is meant to comfort God's people, encourage them, say, God has you. And you want to know why that is? It's because this has been his plan from the beginning. It's not grounded in your, your obedience or the level of your faith, but rather in God's eternal counsel. And he has promised, he's decided all the way back in eternity past. So there's nothing that's going to break, break you from that and move you away from that. And that should comfort you. That should give you a lot of encouragement and strength. All right, let's beat down on Arminians for a minute because Bobbick <laughs> Bob, is not going to leave you any room to say, yes. I believe in grace, but not election. Yes, this he, is he's, so good. He's going to say, look, if you believe that you are saved by grace, guess what you also have to believe? 
You have to believe in election. Let me read you why Bavink says that. Page 254. When the covenant of grace is separated from election, it ceases to be a covenant of grace and becomes again a covenant of works. Election implies that God grants man freely and out of grace the salvation which man has forfeited and which he can never again achieve in his own strength. But if this salvation is not the sheer gift of grace, but in some way depends on the conduct of men, then the covenant of grace is converted into a covenant of works. Man must then satisfy some condition in order to inherit eternal life. In this, grace and works stand at opposite poles from each other and are mutually exclusive. If salvation is by grace, it is no longer by works, or otherwise grace is no longer grace, and if it is by works, it is not by grace, or otherwise works are not works, Romans 11.6. The Christian religion has this unique characteristic, that it is the religion of sheer grace, but it can be recognized and maintained as such only if it is a free grace coming up out of the counsel of God alone. Mic drop. So in other words, God did not look into the future and save you because he saw that you were going to believe. Correct. Because that would be contingent upon you. something. Yes. That, his yes. counsel, his decision would be contingent upon a decision that you made. And that would be your work. Correct. This is the classic sort of reformed way of thinking through how grace actually works. Now, Bovink, oh, here's a, here's a spot. Uh, he says, it is said against this counsel that if everything is determined from eternity, man is a mere toy in the hands of divine caprice. What good is it for a person to lead a virtuous life? Uh, what harm is it for a person to live in sin? If a person is elected, he'll be saved anyway. Blah, blah, blah. He said that, he says the fact that the counsel, that the confession of the counsel of God has often been abused in this way is most certainly true. In other words, what he's saying is, yep, there are idiots out there that, that treat the counsel of God as though it's a deterministic kind of thing where it's like, well, you know, it's mechanistic. What Boving says is that's not the way the Christian tradition has understood this doctrine. In fact, at the end of the chapter, um, he reminds us this. Uh, a final characteristic of the covenant of grace is that it realizes itself in a way which fully honors man's rational and moral nature. It is based on the counsel of God, and nothing may be subtracted from that fact. Behind the covenant of grace lies the sovereign and omnipotent will of God. But that will is not a destiny which imposes itself on man from without, but rather the will of the creator of heaven and earth, one who cannot repudiate his own work in creation or providence and who cannot treat the human being he has created as though it were a stock or stone. That will is the will of a merciful and kind father who never forces things with brute violence, but successfully counters all of our resistance by the spiritual might of love. The will of God is not a blind, irrational force. It is will, wise, gracious, loving, and at the same time, free and omnipotent. Therefore, God works in conflict with our darkened understanding and our sinful will. In other words, God is graciously overcoming our resistance to him, working in us, not just working outside of us. And so Bavik is, is quick to emphasize both the sovereignty of God, but also the fact that the way that sovereignty takes shape is in accordance with the nature of what it means for us to be human. Our minds, our wills, our emotions. It is not imposed on us from without, but it is God's grace transforming us from within. Yeah, another way to say this is he, it's not only the ends, but the means that are part of God's yes. election yes. and the counsel of his will is that it's not just, hey, this this total end of salvation 
And so that we can just sort of look at that and just neglect our life and the means by which we get to that place of salvation. You know, our wills, our minds, our, their ethical lives matter. Here's a way that Boving says it, page 259. As the Redeemer or Recreator, God follows the line which he drew as Creator. Grace is something other than and higher than nature, but it nevertheless joins up with nature, does not destroy it, but restores it. That sounds exactly like Thomas Aquinas, doesn't it, Chris? For Wait, all the Aquinas I thought, haters out I thought there, we weren't supposed to like him. For all the Aquinas haters out there, that is almost a direct quote from St. <laughs> yeah. Thomas Aquinas, that grace perfects nature or restores nature. So Bavink, and that's one of the things I like about Bavink is as he is a natural law reformed theologian. He, he, he understands that when God, as he says it, when God redeems us, he follows the line that he drew as creator. So all of God's works in redemption bring to fulfillment God's original creative intention yeah. for humanity yeah. rather than being some weird imposition onto it. Well, and it's cool how he even traces the act of creation, the father through the son with the spirit. And like, that's exactly how salvation works as well. There's the creation and recreation. There's a parallel there. All right, final question. Chris, sometimes when we preach the gospel, though, aren't we, like, telling people they should repent and believe? I mean, we're not just saying God loves you no matter what. We're saying God <laughs> wants you to repent and believe in him. Yes. And so Bavig says, hey, if this is all about grace, how come, it's, how come when we preach the gospel, it sounds like God is making a demand of us? Um, listen to this. This is at the very end of the chapter. The covenant of grace which really makes no demands and lays down no conditions, nevertheless comes to us in the form of a commandment, admonishing us to faith and repentance. He quotes Mark 1.15 here, which is where Jesus says, repent and believe. Taken by itself, the covenant of grace is pure grace. It gives what it demands, and it fulfills what it prescribes. The gospel is sheer good tidings, not demand, but promise, not duty, but gift, but in order that as promise and gift it may be realized in us, it takes on the character of moral admonishment in accordance with our nature. It does not want to force us, but it wants nothing other than that we freely and willingly accept in faith what God wants to give us. The will of God realizes itself in no other way than through our reason and our will. That is why it is rightly said that a person by the grace he receives, himself believes, and himself turns from sin to God. Uh, if you heard it there, what Bavik is saying is exactly what we were just talking about. What he's saying is, the reason the gospel comes to us as a command, repent and believe, is because God is asking us to exercise our will, mm -hmm. that he is working with the way he has made us as human beings. So though it is sheer grace, the grace comes to us as humans and invites us, using our mind, our will, our activity, to turn to God in repentance and faith. And so that is not less gracious. It's rather the way that God's grace is coming to us is through our reason and our will. And so he says that's why the Bible says that, that when a person believes, it's them doing the believing. But it is not less the grace of God because it is you doing the believing. That this is how grace and nature are coming together in God's grace coming to us in the gospel totally free, unconditional, and yet as human beings requiring us to receive it, asking us to reach out and embrace it. 
Yeah, and this is this is what's beautiful too when you think about it. The God accomplishing the covenant. So I mean, Christ has accomplished it, right? But in the sense of how that counsel, how that all all that plays out through redemptive history is through us preaching the gospel. How what are the means by which God transforms us and our wills and our minds to receive the grace? It's through the proclamation of the gospel, which we are called to go and do. So God has invited us, and this kind of goes back to your point before of bringing a people together. And what does that people get to do? We get to participate with God in mission and proclaim the gospel. And that's the means by which people actually experience this covenant of grace for themselves. So it's beautiful when you consider God has brought us into this. It's, it's not just something where we're saved and yay, let's go to heaven, but it's actually, he's brought us into something far bigger and greater. And even here before eternity, we're participating with him in this great, beautiful plan of redemption that he's accomplished through Christ. It's rich. Makes me want to show up this Sunday and worship God. Come on. And praise him. I think I'll do that. Bethany wishes you could see all of our arm movements as we've been talking into these yeah. microphones. Yeah. There's <laughs> has, been has a lot. Been a, has it been extra gestury? Yes. <laughs> Lots yes. of excitement. <laughs> Chris has been waving in the air. Smacking um, people. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so it might be the, it might be the sugar from the cheesecake that's causing that. I don't know. Um, Anyway, hey, this topic of the covenant of grace, one of the most foundational um, aspects of Reformed theology. And if you, if this is a new topic to you, I recommend this chapter from Bob and Key is very helpful in helping us understand what we are talking about when we talk about grace and how it's not just a discrete um, aspect of our salvation, but how it brings us into the divine plan from the very beginning of time to gather people for himself. So thanks for listening. Thanks for reading along with us as we continue to journey through Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God. See you next time. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversations.